Amen. And as you're seated, children, you can be released for Children's Church. Your teachers will be back there to receive you. And I'd encourage you, like even as we get ready to prepare our hearts to hear God's Word, to keep the lyrics of that song in your heart and mind. Lord, be my everything heart of my own heart, that, that that would be continually on our hearts and minds through the message this morning. I also want to let you know that in September, we, we restarted and relaunched our community group. So if you are not in a community group, I would encourage you to get connected. Our community groups are groups of like 10 to 15 people that meet throughout the community around the biblical text that we study on a Sunday morning. And we really, we believe that discipleship is about transformation, not just information. It's not just about learning more about God. It's, it's learning to walk in obedience to what God says, having the Holy Spirit transform us into the men and women that He desires us to be. We also have something that we're starting that's new, that's DNA groups. These are groups of three or four people of the same gender that are meeting together for, for deep personal care in discipleship, uh, as well. We're beginning these groups by going through a new resource called uh, Growing in Christ Together. It's a 16-week discipleship journey uh, to do together. So if you are not signed up and that's something you're interested in, please see us at the Connect table. If you are already signed up, we have the books available for you at the table after the service. So you can pick those up there. If you've signed up and you're not connected with the group, please reach out to me. We're still working for like what times work for people and in that to make sure everyone gets connected. So today we are continuing through our study through the gospel of Mark. If you remember last week, as we've been working through Mark, the gospel of Mark is kind of like this adrenaline fueled action film right? The first 10 chapters, it spans three and a half years. Mark uses the word immediately 41 times. Compare that to the four times we see it in the entirety of the Old Testament. Mark uses it 41. The pace uh, of, of the gospel of Mark is blinding. But then we get to chapter 11, and all of a sudden the action increases, but time slows down. It's like it begins to move in slow motion as we see the final week of Christ. And we see like what, what we saw in the beginning of chapter 11, Jesus' provocative triumphal entry, right? He's ruffling the feathers of, uh, of the religious leaders because he's entered the temple. He's flipped over tables and chairs, and, and he's declared like, what are you doing here? This is my house. It's supposed to be a house of prayer to all nations. Last week we saw where the religious leaders are furious with Jesus. Like, you can tell they've been up all night. They've been ruminating on how ticked off they are with Jesus. And as soon as Jesus steps foot in the temple on Tuesday, they're there to meet him. They're asking him question, who gives you the right? Who gives you the authority to come in here and do this? And over and over again, through theological trickery, through human wisdom, they're trying to entrap Jesus because they want to see him destroyed. What we're going to see today, though, is out of this crowd, this disgruntled crowd, comes one man who asks a genuine question. And in Jesus' response, he's going to break through all the appearances of religiosity, and he's going to expose the heart and show us what is true religion. What does it mean to actually follow Christ? 
So let's pray, and then we're going to dive into the text in Mark chapter 12. We'll be picking up in verse 28. So let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, I thank you. I thank you for this time that we have together, even though it's, it's hot and waiting for the AC to kick on, Lord. We need to hear from you this morning. We don't just need an encouraging word, a motivational speak. We need to hear from the living God. We need the Holy Spirit to move on our hearts and minds. And so, Lord, would you do that? Would you open our eyes to see? Would you open our hearts to, to receive the truth of your word, Lord? Would you draw us closer to you in this time? And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to kind of tell the story as we go through it. But if you look here in verse 28, this is still on Tuesday. This is after the three different groups have come to Jesus. They've asked their questions. And it says, now one of the scribes came up. He heard them disputing. He heard the groups, right? He heard the groups come up and confront Jesus. Now it seems like they're arguing with one another. Like, why did you ask that question? Why didn't you ask this question? Who does he think he is? You can see the disgruntled nature of the religious leaders who have already confronted Jesus. And out of this crowd comes this scribe. And he asks the question, which commandment is the most important of all? Now, a scribe is a religious lawyer, right? So he would have known the law, all 613 laws. His job was to know the laws and to help people apply the law to their, their day. So he knew all 613. He knew the 365 that were the you shall nots and what people were not supposed to do. And he knew the 248 of what people were supposed to do. He knew the law, but now his question is a question that, that we like to ask, and you see all the list on social media, right? Which one is the greatest? Which one's the goat, right? The greatest of all time. Well, we love these lists, don't we? Who's the, the goat when it comes to basketball? Is it Michael Jordan? Is it LeBron James? Like, who's, what's the greatest TV show in the last decade? The top five songs. Like, we want to make lists out of everything, which one's the greatest? We love that. And this is essentially what the scribe is coming to Jesus with. with. Okay, 613 laws. Which one's the goat? Which is the greatest of all time? Which is the greatest of the laws? And Jesus' response is clear. He's going to answer it, though, in three parts. And I want us to hear because there's something intriguing about this. He says the most important is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It begins with who God is. Now, this statement is called the Shema. This would have been prayed by Jews every morning and every evening. And as they prayed, they would have covered their eyes and they would have prayed out, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Day after day, morning and evening, these words would have been on their lips. And this is exactly where Jesus begins. The, the translation would be like, Hear, O nation, Yahweh, the, the covenant-making, the covenant-keeping God is our Elohim. 
He is our might. He alone is supreme. He is the mighty one. Yahweh is one. There is no other God. He is the one true God. He is unique in essence and existence. He alone is God and there is no other. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And the whole law is understood in the light of who God is. Now keep this in mind because then it says, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your, your, your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. You shall love the Lord your God. How do you hear that? This is where I want to get a little technical because words have moods, right? Like if you say to me, do you want to go to McDonald's for lunch after church? You're going to read my mood, even though I can use the same word. If I'm like, fine. You're like, okay, what time? When will you be ready? Right? You're going to read my mood as being agreeable. If I'm like, fine. Same word, different mood. They're going to like, why are you in such a bad mood? Like, what's wrong with that? Do you not like McDonald's? Is this like against your diet? Like, what's going on? If you're like, fine. You're like, do you have a better idea? You're going to read my mood, right? The interesting thing is in the Greek, we can know what the mood of a word is by the way it's written. So it's going to cause us to think about it different. So, for instance, you can read this, you shall as what's known as an optative way, which is a probability. Maybe. Maybe you'll love God with all your heart. Maybe you won't. Maybe you'll love Him with all your strength. Maybe you won't. Just try to get to 51% and you'll be fine. Right? That's how we would end up applying it. Or it could be an imperative. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your soul. This is commanded because of who God is. Now, if that's the case, what's the application? Do I love God enough? Am I I withholding something of my heart? Am I withholding something of my mind? Am I withholding something of my strength? Do I love God enough because of who He is? And then it becomes this aspect of, am I doing enough? The reality, though, is this word is not an imperative. It's what's known as an indicative, which means this. It's a certainty. It's an absolute, not because of our own effort, but because of who God is. So now think about what it's saying. It's saying, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And because He is an all-consuming fire, as it said two chapters earlier in Deuteronomy where this is quoted from, and again in Hebrews chapter 12, He is going to consume everything. When your heart is surrendered to God, He will consume every ounce of your strength, every thought in your mind. Lord, be my everything. This is the invitation because that is what God is promising to do in us. It's not a command that we do. It's something He is doing in us. And then Jesus goes on and He says, and love your neighbor as yourself. Again, an indicative, not an imperative. 
Meaning, once again, because we are surrendered to God, He is then producing in us, He is transforming us, our affections, our thoughts, our desires, not only toward God, but also toward other people. Because God is God, your loving surrender before God will result in loving sacrifice to others. This changes everything. Like for me, I didn't know this going into this. Like I'm wrestling with the passage and I'm seeing how the text unfolds and then all of a sudden I'm seeing like there's a deeper meaning here of of what's being said and we're going to see that play out in the story because the, the scribe responds, right? He says, yes, what you say is true. What you say is right. The Shema is accurate. The Lord our God, He is one. There is only one God. And yes, you are right to love God with everything. And yes, to love others as we love ourselves. What you say is right. It is true. (laughs) But here's the thing. The scribe also adds to it in Mark 12, 33. The heart is much more than the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. The scribe is remembering other passages like Hosea 6.6 that says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. What he's seeing, what Jesus is saying, and what the scribe sees as that true religion is about the heart, not your religious activity. Religious rituals are secondary to a right relationship with God and with others. That actually religious rituals, the things we do for God, have no meaning, no significance whatsoever if they are not coming from a place where our hearts are surrendered to God. If we are going through the motions of going to church and singing worship songs and giving a tithe, but we're only doing it to to puff up our own appearance of being godly and religious, it has absolutely nothing to do with the hearts that surrender to God. Only about making ourselves look better in front of man. And here's what Jesus says. You're right. You're close to the kingdom of God. It's a curious statement, isn't it? You're close. But where was he off? This is where we need to see the stories in the gospel like a string of pearls that are meant to be connected and not just read in isolation from one another. They are put together for a reason. And so the question becomes for the scribe and for us, what makes him close? What is it about the heart? Who are we surrendered to? Is this scribe and are we just surrendered to an appearance of godliness or actually surrendered to God? And what does that mean? A God of our own imagination and our own will and desire? Who are we surrendered to? And this is now where you're going to see Jesus begin to make a distinction. What do the scribes teach and how do they act? And what is God calling us to? And then we're going to see him end with an illustration of what true godliness looks like. So look with me as it continues in verse 35. Jesus is going to ask an interesting question here. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, 
how can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? Now, let's just stop there for a moment. What does this mean? Jesus is correcting something that the scribes teach, but we can miss what that means. The scribes thought that the Messiah, the one who was promised, was going to be from the genealogy of King David, that he would be fully and only human, and that he was going to establish an earthly kingdom to overthrow Rome. Jesus has already had this conversation in private with his disciples. Who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, right? Now he's bringing that question publicly on the temple mount. Why do the scribes say that the Messiah was only going to be human? Because Jesus is going to show that Yahweh is equal to the Messiah, that the Messiah is God. David himself, Jesus is going to quote, who was in the Holy Spirit, meaning this isn't just David's wisdom, this isn't just David's expectation. David was being inspired by God to declare these words, to say these words, to proclaim these words. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And Jesus asked the question, David himself calls him God. David himself calls the Messiah Lord. So how is he his son? You don't call your son, your child, God. Jesus is making a very clear statement. He's saying the Messiah is not only human. He is also fully God. By what authority do you come in here and disrupt our worship? Jesus is making it clear. This is my house. I am God. Will you surrender? This is the question that is before the scribe. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Will we surrender our hearts before him? But then Jesus is going to go a bit deeper. He's going to show that not only are the scribes believing and teaching wrongly, but he's also going to show that all the scribes care about is their own appearance. They only care how other people perceive them. And so he's going to give them the warnings that said, and in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes. Beware of them. These are religious leaders. And Jesus is saying, watch out. Pay attention. Don't just follow them blindly. Not everyone who claims to be a pastor is godly. Not everyone who has the title of pastor speaks for God or speaks truthfully. Beware of who you follow. Everyone who appears to be godly is not actually living surrendered to God. Some are just doing that to get privilege and power and recognition in the eyes of other people. Just because someone has a title or appears a certain way does not mean that they are worth following. Beware. And Jesus is going to give five warnings. How do you see? How do you know if there's someone that you should be following or not following? And he begins by warning them. 
Beware of the scribes because they like to walk around in long robes. See, beware of leaders who think that their appearance makes themselves more godly before God. I grew up in the kind of church where you were more godly if you wore a suit and tie, right? Like, oh, you, you show up in a tie and you would regret that this morning, right? Without AC, like forget it. But oh, they, they think themselves, like the funny thing is seeing places through, throughout the continent of Africa where missionaries had come in and suit and ties were the same as godliness. And so people in the middle of the desert still wearing shirt and ties. We can think ourselves better, but we can make the same mistake, can't we? I hate ties. They're like a noose around your neck. I despise them. But I can think myself better because what? I'm willing to wear jeans and a button-down shirt. So that makes me more golly because I'm not concerned about my appearance. Well, do you see how insidious it can be? When we think that our appearance makes us in any way better before God than someone else, beware. Beware of the leader who says, my clothes define me. Because that's what they were doing. They loved their long robes. They loved standing out. They love the recognition, like in the marketplace, the greetings. Oh, that people would greet you. Oh, pastor. Oh, father. Oh, elder or deacon or community group leader. Beware of the person who demands you know and use their title so it puffs up their own ego. Beware of that person. Like I have to check myself because even when I sign an email, do I just put Steve or do I put Pastor Steve? Right? Like, I think about this because I'm like, am I doing it so I get recognition? Or am I doing it so you can distinguish me from the dozen other Steves we have in the congregation? Like, but I have to check my heart in that. Why? Because some people use a religious position to puff themselves up. And we see that, that not only is it recognition, but it's a sense of privilege. He's like, the scribes, they want the best seats in the synagogues and at the, the feast. If you ever hear religious leaders say, don't you know who I am? Run. Run. They are nobody. When we think that our position gives us a sense of privilege or rights rather than an increased responsibility to serve, Run. Because people can use religious authority to lord it over others and seek for themselves recognition and power. Power that it said even caused them to devour the homes of widows. Because privilege creates within us a hunger and an appetite then for power. And he's saying beware. Beware of religious leaders who are using you to build their own platform to build their own kingdom. And you're just a means to their end. Beware. Watch out. It's deceitful. Because all they care about is their reputation. For pretense, they make long prayers, it says. This one gets me. Have you ever prayed but you're more aware of how other people are hearing you rather than you are aware that you're speaking to 
the Lord our God? Like, I'm praying, and then I say something, and I'm like, that was dumb. Why did I say that? What are they going to think of me? Like, I want to pray in a way that, that people think I'm wise and godly and spiritual, and I just fumbled my way through that. And the whole time I'm praying, I'm thinking about how someone else is perceiving my prayer. Am I praying to God, or am I praying for other people to think that I'm godly and how I'm praying? Do you see how deceitful this can be in our heart? In our mind? Like, am I praying? I, this, is, this is what gets me. Am I praying to continue the sermon and talking to you or because I'm praying to God? Have you ever heard this? Like, is he actually praying or did he just want to preach longer and he's using prayer to cover up the extended sermon? Who are you talking to here? Prayer is talking with God. Is it for pretense? Or is it in humility and surrender. This is where I think we all need to check our own hearts, not just to be aware of who we follow, though that is part of it, but aware of our own hearts. Are we too easily satisfied? Here's what I mean. Are you too easily satisfied that to simply have the appearance of godliness? Like if other people think you're godly, I see them at church, and they, they have their Bible, and they give, and they're in community group, and oh, you're such a good person. Oh, you, you do so much. That's so wonderful. And, and you get recognition, and you get praise. Are you comfortable with that, to have the appearance of godliness, even if your heart is no longer surrendered to God? You are merely using religion for your own gain for your own acceptance, for your own significance, but you're no longer living out of surrender to the Lord our God. Are we too easily pleased? Or are we consumed by God? Like, out of surrender to Him. The Lord our God is a consuming fire, and, and, and He's transforming my every thought, my every desire, my will, my emotion, my thought, my strength. It is all to Him. He is my everything. I have nothing left. And do I fail? Do I stumble? Absolutely. But I am being consumed as I live in surrender to Him. Or am I just going through the motions? Because this is what Jesus is giving a warning of. The scribes are going through the motions. They are content to have the appearance of godliness even though they had no resemblance of godliness. And this is where Jesus is going to illustrate for us in this real-life illustration, what then does it look like? If the scribes are not the example who everybody praises, who looks the part, who plays the part, who have the titles, if they're not the example of who we follow, then who? What does it look like? And this is when it says, Jesus stepped back in verse 41. And he sat down, and he sat down opposite the treasury, and he watched people putting money in the offering box. And many rich people, they put large sums of money. They would make an annual pilgrimage to Jerusalem, sometimes once a year, and this was for the Passover. And so they're there, and they're bringing an annual tithe to the temple, right? It was customary that to use silver, in this case. Uh, one piece of silver was like a day's wage. It would be today's value of like 250 to $300. So you can imagine 
The law then was 10% of whatever they earned over a year. They're bringing that in silver coins. They, they have the bags of coins. You can see it. You can hear it as it's falling into the box. Look at these wealthy people. They look good. They look godly. Look how much money they're giving. Look at their generosity. And then a widow approaches. And she puts in two small copper coins, which make about a penny. It's actually a quarter of a penny is what the value would be. Two light, small copper coins get dropped in. And Jesus, it's like disciples, come here. Do you want to see what it looks like? Do you want to see what it looks like to be surrendered to God with your everything with all your heart and all your soul, do you want to see what that looks like? Don't look at the rich people. Don't look at the large sums of money they dropped. Do you see the widow? Those two small coins, it was her everything. It's all she had. There was nothing more to give. She had two copper coins. She gave two copper coins. She gave everything. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And Jesus says, look at the widow because the wealthy, they gave out of their excess. They gave out of their leftovers. Sure, they gave a lot, but they didn't give everything. They gave what was convenient. But this widow surrendered everything. So I want to close with this thought. How are you seeking to just keep up appearances? I like, let's be honest. This happens in church, right? We can go time and we can play the games and we can go through the motions. And as long as people don't see beneath that, we're okay. Where are you trying to keep up appearances so that you can actually maintain personal independence because you're not so much surrendered to God as you are surrendered to the fleeting desires of your own will that's what you're really surrendered to you're you're not so much surrendered to the Lord our God you're surrendered to people's opinion of you as long as I can keep up as long as they keep thinking I'm this way I'm okay But we never ask ourselves, are we actually okay before God? Where are you trying to keep up appearances? That can come through going through the motions. That can come through lying. How's everything going? It's great. It's wonderful. God is good. And then you're going to cry yourself home because you're hating what's going on in your life. And and you're not actually being honest with where you're at. You're hiding. You're distancing yourself from community because it's easier to keep up appearances when we're disengaged from others. Where are you more concerned with how other people view you rather than your actual position before God? And if we're honest, we all do it. I'm not saying like some of you are bad and some of you are good. I'm saying we all do it. In some way, we have to check our hearts. It is a temptation. 
that things can be going really good, but the moment they're not, then I want to hide. And to walk in community with one another is to walk in humility and honesty with one another when we can say, right now, I'm not doing so well. And I'm tempted to just play the game. But I can't. I don't want to because God is too good. He's too holy for me to just pretend I need the reality of who He is. I need the reality of His consuming fire in my thought and life so that it consumes my every thought because right now my thoughts are wandering. And I don't want to just go through the motions. And the second question, the final question is this, to whom are you surrendered? That I think this is the application out of the passage. It's not just You shall love the Lord your God. Love God better. Give Him more of your heart. Give Him more of your mind. Give Him more of your soul. That is not the application to just go and do better. The question is, who are you surrendered to? Is it a God of your own imagination, your own making, or is it the one true God who is eternally existent distinct. There is no other God. And I am surrendered fully to Him. Jesus makes it clear. He is the Messiah. He is God. Think about what it says in Isaiah 53 as I read this, as as it contrasts the scribes only being concerned about their appearance. And yet, Jesus' appearance who they were and who Christ is, speaking, prophesying of who the Messiah would be. It says, for He grew up before Him like a young plant, like the root out of dry ground. Dry, barren ground comes life. He had no form, no majesty that you would look at Him and say, wow, isn't Jesus special? Look at His appearance. Look at His long robes that He was born with. None of it. There was nothing in his appearance that made him seem like he was who he truly claimed to be. There was no beauty that we should desire him. People despised him. They rejected him. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He knew deep sorrow. And yet people didn't, it's, they didn't even think much of Him at all. Who are you? Who gives you the right, the authority to come in here? And yet then Jesus claims to be God in human flesh. And He compounded His own sorrow by taking our grief. Think of what the Gospel is. Though He had no appearance, He bore our sorrows. He carried our shame. He was rejected by the Father so that you and I can be accepted by the Father. This is what He did. He was beaten. The beard ripped from His face. The flesh ripped from His back because of your sin, because of your rebellion. He took that. That's who He is. That's what He has done. And He willingly and lovingly gave us mercy, grace, and love 
He purchased and secured our hope. This is what He has done. And it's this call, hear, O cross point, the Lord is God. Jesus is God. The Lord is one. Surrender your heart to Him. Christ alone is God. Christ alone is holy. Christ alone is sufficient to make us holy. Surrender. Surrender before our God and King. Do not settle for having the appearance of godliness when Christ has purchased actual godliness on our behalf. When you pretend in your own effort to be something you're not, when Christ laid down His life in in His own flesh, pierced by nails, purchasing actual godliness that He freely gives us. And He rose from the dead, purchasing our hope that this broken world, the brokenness we see and experience every day is not the end of the story. Christ will return. And He has purchased for us a resurrection that for those who have surrendered to Christ will spend eternity in His presence in the kingdom of God. And those who trust in themselves will spend eternity separated from God in hell. And so the important question is not do better, but surrender to the one who has already done the best. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You. I thank You for Your Word that is a reminder to lay down our religious efforts and just the religious activity that we can fall into the trap and routine of because we care what other people think about us. Lord, lead us. Convict our hearts where we are trusting and wanting to have the appearance of godliness while walking in rebellion. Lord, I pray that as you convict where conviction is needed, that it would not end there, it would not end with condemnation, but it would lead us to the mercy and grace we have in Christ. Lord, that as we confess our sins, you are faithful and good and just to pay. You've paid the penalty for those sins. And so, Lord, we can confess them as we look to you and find our hope and rejoice in the truth of the gospel. That the perfect life of Jesus was sufficient. His death that paid the penalty for our sins was completely sufficient. That Christ rising from the dead is sufficient to purchase our hope of a resurrection one day to spend eternity with you. Let our hearts this morning, let them rest in you, God. We desperately, desperately need your Holy Spirit to to lead us, to guide us in this, Lord. And in Jesus' name, amen.